Hello, this is Matt coming to you on a rainy Christmas Eve to make a correction. I say at the beginning of this episode that it is episode 62. It is actually episode 63. Um, and also there will be a little uh, holiday treat at the end for everybody. So enjoy. I don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more. This is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know, this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 62. And today we are talking about the documentary Tread from 2019, directed by Paul Solit or Soleil. Not sure how you pronounce it. And we were just talking and, and we had to start recording because I wanted to get this on, on the podcast. But uh, you're saying that you took more notes on this than you've taken on just about anything we've watched, at least lately. Um, and I was saying, yeah. like, when we first started, I took so many notes, um, like, in the first <laughs> few weeks. like It was like I was getting ready for class or something. And then I just kind of stopped <laughs> for for the most part. Like, I, st- I would write, like, little things down. But then something about, like, when we did The Conjuring, I took so many notes on those. And then I took a lot of notes on... Uh, uh i want to call it cool running silent running um and it ended up like not mattering because all the notes kind of said the same thing uh which can happen sometimes um but yeah this is this is a movie that's got a lot going on it seems like there's not necessarily a direct correlation between how many you know how much we write down our thoughts and the the quality of the conversation because a lot of times I think the most sort of exciting conversations are ones that happen spontaneously. You know, like we, we, we come upon a new idea as we're talking. Uh, and we, we even had, you know, part of it seems like before, before you moved to Auburn, we had, you had like a whiteboard and we would just like <laughs> write little phrases so we wouldn't forget what we want to talk about. Uh, and that was, that was good. And I want to say with fight club, I just did a thing where I would just like write down, I just wrote down single words, like broad topics and would just throw those out. And, and that, that worked pretty well too. But most of the things I wrote down for tread are like, I've got this weird sort of psychological kind of interpretation. And I, I, I was watching it through that lens and didn't want to forget, you know, sort of specific aspects of it. Uh, so I think that accounts for, for why there's, you know, basically I've got like three pages of in my, in my, you know, tiny pocket notebook, but still three pages of notes. Yeah. And just to sort of go over how we got to this moment, (laughs) um, something we'll talk about with, with Marv Heemeyer. Um, but I was listening to a podcast I'm a fan of called, uh, what a hell of a way to die. It's a couple of guys that served in the U.S. military and they talk about things related to kind of military culture in America, but they're, they're also like kind of lefty socialist guys. And so they talk mostly about how stupid a lot of it is. And on one of the episodes, um, the, one of the hosts and a couple of guests were talking about this movie and this is a movie I saw a preview for it like a trailer or something like a long time ago, or I, I watched the trailer for it on Netflix on like the autoplay, th- something I, I came across it and I was like, 
I need to come back and give that a watch. And then I forgot about it. And then I listened to that podcast and it, it kind of struck me like a lightning bolt. I was like, holy shit, I have to watch that. And that same day, I just kind of like walked into the living room and I was like, hey, Lava, we're going to watch this documentary. And, you know, she's like, what, what is it about? And, uh, you, you'll see. Um, and so I just sat down and, and put it on and just kind of like strapped in and got ready for the for the ride. And it did not disappoint. I was very much, yeah. uh, I don't know, like to say entertained is kind of kind of uh, dark, but there's a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, I had never heard of it. I'd never heard of the the actual story. Never heard of the documentary. And I think we've talked about it a few times. I get a little pissy when we do documentaries because because doc, the October there's just something. Yeah, uh, like there's just something dishonest inherent in documentary filmmaking that rubs me the wrong way. And I'll talk a little bit more about that because I feel like this documentary really leans in to what I'm talking about and and just sort of, you know, says fuck it and 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 uh well I guess it doesn't make any sense unless I explain what I mean. Where uh documentaries we talked about this with Tiger King, I think, they kind of withhold information and arrange it in the most dramatic way, which of course is good storytelling and that's what you want to happen when you're you know reading fiction or watching a fictional movie but depending on the substance if it's rearranged in a certain way in a documentary that's supposed to correspond to reality it just becomes sort of dishonest and the part i'm talking about in tread is that picture they keep showing you of marv He's in this like purple button up and a hat and he's smiling uh, and you just sort of see him from the waist up. And then by the time you realize that he's lost his damn mind, they just sort of do the, the, the reverse Ken Burns, you know, and fade out. And you realize that picture you've been looking at the whole time he's carrying, he's, he's holding this like military grade, like anti-aircraft <laughs> rifle. He's got like a something. Barrett 50 Cal. He's just like uh, holding in the woods. Right, so that's what I mean when I say it sort of sort of leans into that that uh, dishonesty inherent in like the revelation of information in uh, documentary. Yeah, and there's kind of that's not just a, necessarily a, a documentary thing, right? It's like the inherent dishonesty of of nonfiction genres in general. Where you can't really yeah, present yeah. objective reality. Like reality is always going to be subjective, which is what the film really kind of revels in. Um, it, and like you say, it kind of it, it leans in and really uh, wears this tag of this is a story of a man who, like you said, lost his damn mind. And that's evidenced by, like you're saying, with the picture and also with the weird like CGI reenactments of the tank that they use. Like they have the actual footage, yeah. but then there's like the reenactments that they put together, um, which are are kind of like yeah, yeah. weird and, and sort of corny, but they work because of the overall tone of the film. Because it's a it's a this movie doesn't That's shy away. Another thing I noticed. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say that the movie doesn't shy away from like, hey, this is a person who went insane, but it also makes you empathize with him a little bit. And for a lot of the film, I was like on his side. I was very much team 
Team Marv uh, until about halfway through, I guess, which I guess is is the goal they're trying to accomplish. Exactly, exactly. You see it. Uh, they're they're doing something pretty interesting structurally, where the first sort of half or the first act or whatever it is, you're you're on Team Marv because you feel uh, kind of you know you empathize with Marv and you think it's going to be kind of a good old boys ganging up on the individual uh maybe maybe like an underdog story if you're you know if you're not familiar like i wasn't with the with the whole narrative and how it ended um and and so you're on marv's side and you think oh or maybe it's going to be tragedy and 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 we're going to see the the negative effects of this sort of small town america good old boy uh kind of racist uh, gang in a way <clears throat> and so the first you know 40 minutes or whatever it is treats it one way and and you sort of get marv's perspective but then after that you start to get to know marv better and you realize his perspective is completely fucked <laughs> and and you go from team marv to like oh this is you know a crazy person pretty quickly yeah, kind of it's sort of like reminiscent of Joker in that way or you know a lot of other films where they have that the big twist where it's like oh this person's point of view was not what was actually occurring right or or at least like their kind of subjective reality was was twisted and perverted from what was occurring to a majority of the people that were involved yeah and it's sort of focalized through him and it, it basically it's a it's an unreliable narrator in a way um if you know if we're getting the story through his perspective um or i guess you might call it a instead of an unreliable narrator just like an incomplete narrator um like all we're getting is sort of the overt um happenings uh, you know before 2004 uh, but then we get the kind of uh, uh, interpersonal, the, the details of the interpersonal kind of dynamics between Marv and these these guys. And you realize these guys are probably assholes. Uh, but I also don't think Marv is, is some special victim that they've chosen. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you said you had some sort of psychological reading of Marv and, and I'm interested in that. And it, one of the reasons I wanted okay. to, to watch this was because as I was watching it, there are the scenes where Marv is kind of the, the video recordings that he made of like sat down with a tape recorder and recorded what is basically his manifesto. And as I was listening to it, I thought this is something that I think will will have a lot of things to say about. Because it's this weird intertwining of like American exceptionalism and rugged individualism and theology and all this shit kind of converging. And I was like, I think this is something that, that he'll find at least interesting. Uh, so I want you to, to hit me with your, your theory here about what's going on or what was going on in Marv's head. Okay. Um, so yeah, when I when I say I have a psychological reading, I just mean thinking about the bulldozer and Marv's project um, as as not arbitrary and 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 as a, a sort of concretization 
of an inner state. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's a few mentions of Marv sort of sitting up in his, uh, uh, hot tub, drinking a beer. And I think it's probably instructive and useful to, to, to not treat what he did as just some, you know, crazy act or an arbitrary act of violence. But even if he, if he was, you know, not a stable person, there's a reason that the violence he enacted took the shape it did. And I think that a, a religious man justifying violence by his religion and fortifying uh, a piece of industrial equipment against the outside world and destroying his town is a, uh, an unfortunately good metaphor for the sort of insularity uh, of the American psyche. Um, it, it also makes me think of like technology. Well, well, first of all, it makes me think of the military industrial complex, uh, like the idea that this tool, this bulldozer, can just instantly be turned into a weapon uh, the same way on 9-11 airplanes are turned into a weapon. It's just like we live in this world where seemingly normal things can kill thousands of people and destroy a town if the wrong intentions are to you know, take hold of it. Um, I, think, I think a good way to explain what I mean in terms of Marv is... Think about this movie uh, as the Truman Show in reverse. <laughs> okay. Okay, so in the Truman Show, Truman, you know, lives in this bubble. All his needs are met. He doesn't really know it. He's trying to escape. In Tread, Marv thinks or, like, wants to believe that God is, like, guiding his mission, uh, and is sort of like, he even says something like, I'm not number one in my life. I'm number two. God is my co-pilot or I'm a slave to God or something like that. Um, and so, um, if we think about, you know, obviously the, uh, Ed Harris character, Kristoff is sort of this God figure in the Truman show. Um, Marv sort of realizes that he doesn't live in the bubble in the, in the set. And, and that is sort of, uh, I think maybe what causes him to snap a little bit. Um, it's, it's, it's like he, I, I get a very sort of regressive feeling from Marv. Um, like he, he just sort of wants to live in this kind of womb. Um, and when things don't go his way, he throws this sort of temper tantrum. But, it, but even that is complicated because it's like things do go his way. Like he wins. Like he gets the money. But he still wants to throw a temper tantrum. Um, but I, I, did you notice at the beginning... Um, when they're sort of explaining the the business dynamics of what what makes Marv mad, there's not a whole lot of exposition. It's just like he learned that 
because someone else is, is, you know, has a business that it's going, uh, something's going to happen and, and it's going to cause him problems. It's going to cost him a little bit of money to do what he wants to do. And so the second there's an obstacle to, you know, in reality, Marv just thinks he has the right to, to, uh, without consequence, overcome that obstacle. Um, it's this weird sort of utopian sort of thing, like in, in a way where he like, he thinks it's like, he thinks this little town should be his kind of little paradise. Um, anyway, just, just thinking of, uh, like encountering external obstacles uh, and conceiving as a solution, just like fortifying yourself uh, and and destroying those who you perceive as opposed to you is like deeply regressive uh, and, and almost like infantile. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I mean, I, there's there's a lot to sort of a lot to touch on here. Um but something that that is worth mentioning or what kind of stuck out to me most during the the rampage right because there's a lot leading up what you're talking about is is kind of a lot of the stuff leading up to it which you know will kind of come in and out of all that but the act itself was uh stuck out to me because it's one that targets primarily property yeah um and the only person he really hurts in a direct kind of way is himself, right? He kills himself and he, he like shoots at people, but he doesn't hit anyone. I guess like maybe that, that kind of like, you know, no pun intended kind of shoots this idea full of holes, but it, uh, in, in America, as we've seen with a lot of the sort of black lives matter demonstrations and other things in the country, property, specifically private property is thought of as kind of holy, right? It's kind of holy ground. You can't mess with somebody else's property if you do, then, you know, the hammer of the law kind of comes down. You, you can't, you know, things like graffiti and breaking windows is considered somehow on par with taking a human life in, in the eyes of a lot of people. Um, so the fact that he does that is sort of this uniquely American, like you say, like regressive reactionary striking out at what he thinks is most important, uh, which is not these people, but their property, kind of these representations of them geographically within the town um and it, it it's all because of this sort of uh tyranny of the small town idea that happens um it, it seems like largely in his mind although i'm sure that there were some like good old boy shenanigans going on um but you know a lot of americans will claim well i'll say a lot like i'm generalizing but i feel like some all the people that claim that they want this kind of intimate small town life are ultimately full of shit because as Americans, we seem to mostly crave, you know, ambiguity and anonymity and privacy. And we kind of wrongly call it self-determination when really we just want to sort of not be bothered by other people. It seems for the most part. And that's, that's kind of by design of, you know, capitalist forces trying to atomize people and all this sort of stuff. But it's also kind of a, just a social trait that we think of ourselves as being kind of friendly as a, as a, people as a sort of culture but that's really not the case yeah 
Yeah. Um, another way I, I wanted, I was sort of thinking about this and I think that has a lot of overlap with a lot of the points you just made is, uh, I think it's useful to think of tread as a sort of neo Western on par with like, uh, uh there will yeah. be blood. Uh, think about, uh, Marv as a sort of, uh, uh, Daniel Plainview, um, you know, you remember the scene in There Will Be Blood where the standard oil guy like gives him some sort of suggestion about how to raise HW. And he's oh. like, I'm going to come to your house and cut your throat. Uh, and he just has this over the top response. And that feeling of, of uh, that sort of paranoia feeling like everyone's out to get him. Uh, and so he overreacts exponentially is kind of what's going on with Marv. Uh, you can also think about it in terms of like an, uh, an older type of Western where the, the bulldozer destruction scene is sort of like Clint Eastwood in uh, Unforgiven coming into the bar and just blowing everybody away. Uh, it, it's a weird, it's a, it's a, dis, uh, we're both picking up on the fact that this is a distinctly American story. Oh yeah. Uh, it just happens to be true. Oh, absolutely. And, and, made all the more American by, by the kind of uh, ending title card that we get where it's, you know, th- this happened and then Ronald Reagan died and nobody paid attention to it. Which is right. sort of, uh, but there's but, all these little things he, he's, uh, you see on his coffee table, he's reading a Bill O'Reilly book. Yeah. Uh, probably my favorite little touch. I don't, I, I hope this is a true detail. If not, it's a great little uh, Easter egg or, or metaphor or whatever that the filmmakers threw in. Did you notice what, uh, uh, type of cigarettes Marv smokes in this movie? No, I didn't catch it. American spirits. There you go. Beautiful. That's a metaphor. <laughs> Which is funny. Cause now those are like hipster cigarettes. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that's, uh, I, I thought it was going to be like, I don't know, like Marlboro one hundreds or like some manly shit. Doral's. Yeah. Uh, speaking of like neo-western the the movie that they mentioned that marv is uh wa- you know watches continuously in his uh crazy shed where he's building the the bulldozer is the vin diesel uh vehicle a man apart which i had never seen i'd heard of and used to get confused with knock around guys um and uh I, I watched the preview and a couple of clips of it and it's you know it's what you expect out of a vin diesel movie but it does you know kind of mirror his story where in i mean marv's wife or girlfriend leaves him uh and then you know he out, outside of any institution he seeks to take revenge on the people who you know wronged him in his mind uh, and that you know that's the basic plot of a man apart, but a man apart is like, like we were saying, it's sort of a, a neo Western itself. Yeah. I I just, you mentioned his, uh, I guess his girlfriend leaving him, which she's, I, I wanted to know more about her cause she's Australian and she's in this small Colorado town. She seems like an interesting character. And also yeah. I think the relationship is vastly important for kind of trying to understand why he did this thing. 
Um, I, I rewatched uh, season one of True Detective recently, as is usually true in my life. And it, uh, I was thinking about a quote that uh, Woody Harrelson's character says. He says, uh, past a certain age, a man without a family is a dangerous thing. And I think I think that's very true. Thinking about Marv, because once the once his lady leaves him, he's he's pretty much done. Yeah, and not only that, but there are all these hints that are not so subtle uh, throughout the film about his his home life and his family and his upbringing, and none of it's covered in detail. And I think that's kind of by design. Like maybe they just didn't have the information. But it seems well, as if it's suggesting that, you know, there is something deeper here, but we're not focusing on all that buildup. We're focusing kind of on the the uh, the, the later Marv. We, we're, we're seeing sort of the end product. Well, and the reason the reason I think that the filmmakers don't go into the psychology of Marv is because they clearly want this, as is evidenced by the the title card at the end about about Reagan. They clearly want you to read this in a sort of political way um, and and to go too deep into Marv's individual psychology is it, it would particularize the critique. And so instead of coming off and saying, you know, picking up on these sort of uh, metaphors for the American psyche or, you know, American exceptionalism, individualism the American dream, small town life, uh, we come away thinking that was one crazy person. You Which, know, yeah. if, if the film focuses just on the psychology, that's what we would think. Yeah, which is the, kind of the American special, right? Like uh, anytime there's any sort of shooting, it's, oh, that's crazy lone wolf guy. We don't need to think about all these pressures and, and social things going on that might have led them to that point. Um, but I do think... It, something that I think maybe could have been talked about but more maybe they don't have the information like I said but the fact that he's a veteran and that's where he learns how to be a welder and mm -hmm. so it's this kind of it's an older kind of pipeline for sort of professional men that you don't really see anymore which is like go into the military serve learn a trade come out of it and use that and use your sort of cachet as a veteran to you know amass wealth and live a happy happily ever after ha happily ever laughter uh, happily ever <laughs> after uh life um it's a very kind of like boomer sort of thing um but he marv was that guy like he was sort of the consummate like served his country learned a useful trade was using it to build his own uh you know small businesses and was very successful at it and I think that's that kind of part of his psyche. And I think maybe that's why, because that for so long that has been, and for a lot of people still is kind of the pathway to be like, you know, a true successful American. And the fact that there's someone or, you know, a few people in this town that he sees as standing in his way or threatening that that's kind of what starts to push him down this path toward madness. Right. And, and that's, that's sort of getting to, <clears throat> Like I, I don't want when I say I have a, a sort of psychological reading of Marv, uh, I don't want that to be mistaken for like Marv the individual, uh, but like um, like the 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 bulldozer 
as the American psyche and Marv as like the every man American. Because uh, because you you add up enough Marvs and you have like Trump's America. You know what I'm saying? Like a, a whole a whole nation of people who kind of uh, have the same kind of unconscious attitudes about their place within an economy, uh, their relationship to a community, expectations of, you know, fr- you know from the community. Uh, yeah. So, so I think it's important to distinguish between like an individual psychological reading and like a psychological interpretation of the, of the story as opposed to the person. Yeah. And because there's, there's this thing where I feel like if you, like we were talking about, you, you feel connected with Marv because we've all sort of felt downtrodden or put upon by somebody that we feel like is a position of authority that we're unable to sort of get at. Right. We have this kind of every day, right. That's sort of like the American existence is, you know, the IRS is hassling you, you, your boss is hassling you, the cops are hassling somebody's like on your case and everybody at some point in their life has been like, if I could take a fucking bulldozer down to the tax office or to the white house or, you know, yeah. to this Walmart that I work at and just tear that motherfucker down. Like I would do it in a second. But you know, I was, I was just thinking about the other day I watched the trailer for, I hadn't seen this movie in forever, uh, falling down. by Joe Oh Schumacher yeah. And, uh, uh, Michael Douglas stars. Uh, that's sort of what it is. It's, you know, the suburban kind of white collar, white guy uh is just you know all the little the little you know the tiny hammer that's constantly just just tapping away at your balls just like uh sort of you know adds up in one day and he just fucking loses it and i the preview showed and i've forgotten about the the line at the end when the uh, i think it's robert duvall finally sort of has him in his in his sights and is about to arrest him and uh, Michael Douglas says, I'm the bad guy, like with, <laughs> with sincere confusion. And you can sort of just picture Marv, you know, if, if he hadn't killed himself, just sort of get out and be like, well, I'm the bad guy. Cause he clearly conceives of himself as like the, the, the warrior, the, the warrior for truth and justice. Um, but yeah. of course it's a delusion because even though his, actions for some people might appear to be like extremely cathartic and i'm sure that for him they were his motivations are all over the map and are psychotic and uh, you know all, all of these things um and the fact that he's you know i, I think i, I kind of going back to this point i feel like the fact that he was shooting the gun the, the sort of 50 caliber sniper rifle out of the back of the tank um i feel like that was a if he hadn't have done that, I kind of wonder how this would have been viewed if it had just been purely like a property destruction thing and no threat of him shooting someone. Um, yeah, there, it would have been like like uh, endangerment, like public endangerment or something, because like people definitely could have died. And I tell you what really doesn't help his case is the fact that he destroyed like playgrounds yeah <laughs> but you know that like, was that was, but i have to say like how much did that seem like 
it's like extra like unnecessarily throwing extra you know dirt on his grave you know that oh and then he ran over the playground how dare him it's like oh that that's sort of the least of your worries you don't need to demonize him any farther yeah but it's like i mean the bulldozer's going like 10 miles an hour it's not like (laughs) incidental he was like fuck that playground yeah might as well I am taking it all down. And the uh, library, like he destroyed the library, but that was kind of like incidental because it was in the basement of the town hall or something like that. Yeah. Well, that's what, that you know, to continue my uh, my crazy psychological reading is, uh, you know, Marv can, the, the, the basement is what fucks him up, right? Mm-hmm. His, his, his tread can sort of handle the sort of horizontal surfaces. Fine. Nothing can stop it. But as soon as he's met with a decline or in uh, like a, you know, depth, he cannot handle. And that as soon as he has to confront, uh, this basement, that's when he just gives up and kills himself. Um, this is a totally ridiculous thing to follow that with, but, Weirdly, the shots of Marv inside the tank reminded me of Ace Ventura 2 when Nature Calls when he's, when he's inside the rhino. <laughs> Dude, oh, man. I've got these rhinos. Sometimes I feel like, I, I don't know, sometimes it's like I have a moment where it seems like everything's connected and you're like, man, God's so real. But the, there's this, uh, I just was having a, a s- sort of small conversation with a friend via text about that movie. Because somebody on Twitter was like, post it was I think it's something like post four images that come from uh, that you'll make up a great shot from a great film, and they did like some serious thing, and then somebody posted four shots of Jim Carrey coming out of the rhino's (laughs) ass, and he sent that to me, and I was like, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson thinks that that's like one of the funniest things ever put on film. (laughs) Yeah did did we talk about that? I heard an interview where he he was he was. uh, making the argument that in those like uh, comedy montages of like the greatest films of all time that they play at the Oscars, like they'll have something from like some like it hot and like Tootsie and, you know, just canonical comedies. Uh, He was arguing for the inclusion of Jim Carrey coming out of the rhino's ass in those montages. Yeah. I remember (laughs) like as a kid, that was like the best thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) And he's naked and like all sweaty and just like oh, yeah. so. <laughs> the whole time Marv is destroying the town. I, I'm thinking kind of hot in these rhinos. <laughs> it would have been a way different ending if at the end he crawled out of the ass of the tank. <laughs> oh goodness! Um, yeah, let me, let's just trivialize every every observation we have by just comparing Marv to ace ventura um but yeah like i the way i really and i've been thinking a lot about the uh the way that the townspeople who marv claimed had wronged him in those interviews the sort of talking head interviews that they do i was i was wondering sort of how much of this is truth because you know i'm sure that they weren't as evil as he claims but how much of this is truth and how much of it is them sort of retroactively covering their ass and sort of trying not to be implicated in this? Right. And, and, and I was thinking about that too, because, because Marv's dead, 
there's no accountability to the truth. No. You know, if, if he's the, if, you know, if he is the, the topic, um, yeah, I thought about that too. Uh, the guy who Marv starts off by saying, you know, he like at the auction came up to him and gave him an earful, uh, you know, the filmmakers call that guy and he's like, I don't even think I met him there. Um, uh, but uh, one, one thought I did have is that they don't really have, at least, at least they don't have any legal obligation to lie. Like they're not benefiting by lying legally because no matter what they did, Marv's reaction is so over the top that clearly he's, he's not a, a stable person to yeah. like, even if they had, you know, unjustly, you know, fucked him out of a business deal or whatever, there's no universe in which bulldozing a town is, is an appropriate response to where, to where people are going to be like, Oh, you know what? Those guys should go to jail. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and, you know, I think that's a good way of putting it is they're under no legal obligation, but the only obligation they might have is sort of social moral kind of obligation where, you know, like we're saying there, there's no, there's no, uh, rehabilitating, you know, Marv, he Myers image, right? Like you can't, you can't un, undo what he did. Um, so there, there's no backlash for them, even if they are lying. Like even if somebody, if they were lying and somebody found out who gives a shit because he was crazy and he built a, a killdozer and destroyed half the town. Uh, so it's an interesting thing. Yeah. A murder dozer. Uh, so there's no, there's no, even threat, even thought of pushback. So yeah, like what if they wanted to lie, it's just kind of free reign to do so. And that's kind of a fascinating position to see people be in because it, it automatically throws whatever they're saying kind of, it, it kind of makes it a little bit more suspicious than it would have been otherwise. Um, or maybe not suspicious, but uh, complex. You sort of have to think about it in a different way than if, uh, he hadn't have gone through with it or if it had turned out a different way or something. Um, because of course, if something like this happens, no, in something, especially as batshit crazy as this, no one's going to be like, Oh, maybe I had a hand in pushing him over the edge. Of course not. No, no right. one's gonna, no one's going to believe that. And no one's going to own up to that, even if it was true. Yeah. But and at the same time though, those uh, almost called them the, the Thompson twins, the Thompson <laughs> brothers. Yeah. Uh, not an eighties band, but, uh, the Thompson brothers, you know, those guys are full of shit Oh, and yeah. you know, you know, uh, there's some shady backwoods bullshit going on because they're, you know, they're these rural millionaires in the middle of nowhere. You saw their like, you know, their toys as he called the, the cast iron. Well, you saw their actual toys as cast iron, like, like literal equipment. toys right next to the like 1982 playboy pinup. Yeah. So they, they're, you want to talk about lack of accountability and it wasn't that the thing is that their family had basically founded the town and had been there for, and there's like streets named after them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that's what I was talking about with sort of the tyranny of small towns. Every small town has, you know, a family or a handful of families where, 
they're always involved in some shit or like one of them's always the mayor, uh, which was the case in, in Granby in the, the documentary. Um, and even, even if they're not doing something kind of nefarious, it just seems like they are because they've been in that position for so long and have like, there's no way to ever remove them from it really. Yeah. It's like having royalty almost. And that's how some of them act. Yeah. Yeah. With, with, uh, immunity because there's, they are the, the body that the government body that would oversee. Uh, and uh, the, the, I can't remember what the guy's name is. He's, he's bald and has these big, uh, sideburns and kind of like a weird mustache. He is on the, like the county, what do you call it? Like the oh, yeah, council that dude. or whatever. Yeah, he was yeah. explaining how, you know, the only people who are on these councils are people who want to give back to. Oh the yeah, which like you I'm know like, that's bullshit, <laughs> dude. Like, is this a Norman Rockwell painting? Like, it makes. I mean, that's just total bullshit. If he, if that guy truly believes that, he's crazy. Like, uh, like people do. I don't care if you're talking about like student council in a high school. There is some sort of power trip going on man it, it makes me think of so you know where i'm from if you live in like a small town out in the boonies like you don't have a sort of city fire department you have a volunteer fire department and so the guys it makes me think of the guys that are volunteer firefighters where they pass like the lowest possible training and they don't really do anything i remember once, uh, when I was a kid, the house up the road from ours caught on fire and they just pretty much drove up in the fire truck and watched it burn down. <laughs> and, and that was, that was their contribution. And like knowing some of the, the guys that were on it, it's like, Oh yeah, well, he's a dick. Nobody likes that guy. And he thinks he's the second coming and all, all this sort of stuff. Um, and there were like kids I went to high school with that were, that was their goal is I want to be a firefighter, um, which meant I want to go to the volunteer firefighter house and just sort of hang out and play cards and get drunk with them and not do anything maybe get a cat out of a tree or something or like get an old lady out of a out of a house or something if she can't leave herself uh, if she falls in the shower and he had a big old fucking like like two-way radio like a official looking sort of radio and he would he had it on his hip all day through school and during breaks and stuff he would like turn it on like i want to know if there's anything going on it's like Dude, it's like 12 p.m. on a Wednesday in Paintsville, Kentucky. Like, I'm pretty sure there's nothing big going on. Um, uh, I've so. got a weirdly relevant personal story. that I'm having one of your God is so real moments. Uh, <laughs> have I told you this story? This happened like two weeks ago. Uh, I don't think I've told you this. I I was at, I was at my house at the shack, and uh, it was like 1030 at night. I stepped out onto the back porch to take a pee and I looked in the distance where, where my friend uh, Ryan Mefford and, and his wife Tia are building a new house. And I saw a faint sort of orange glow through these three garage windows. And I, I yelled for Jensie. I was like, Jensie, come out here. <laughs> And she, she comes out and I was like, does that look like the house is on fire? And she's like, that's exactly what it looks like. 
So we get in the Prius and we haul ass down the driveway. And when we pull up to the drive to like the, the garage doors have not been installed yet. So it's just an open garage. When we pull up, there's a fire inside the garage that's about the size of like a good campfire. Um, and the size, you know, keep in mind, we're, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. The size, and it was on a really cold night, first really cold night in a while. And uh, the size of the fire suggested a human being, like trying to keep warm. Why there would be a human being trying to keep warm in the middle of nowhere in this garage, especially when the house is warm and was unlocked, uh, I don't know. But we pull up, we see a very, you know, uh, a very intentional looking fire and get the heck out of there as fast as we can. I called Ryan as fast as I could. I was like, is there something going on at your house I don't know about? They like, you're out here. And he's like, he's, he's like basically asleep. And I was like, dude, I'm calling 911. <laughs> and so I called 911 and the, uh, there's a sheriff deputy guy who's there in like three minutes and he runs out there with his gun drawn and and uh gets a fire extinguisher out of his truck it takes him he runs out of like the juice in the in the fire extinguisher and has to turn on the water it takes him a few minutes to put it out because by that time it was like a little bit bigger uh anyway I ended up, you know, the Mefords showed up 20 minutes later and uh, we were out there, me and Jensie and Ryan and Tia for like three hours in the freezing cold. There were like 10 cop cars and, and uh, uh, fire trucks and shit out there. They, they think uh, they like searched the house for like 30 minutes. They think that one of the workers maybe just like dropped a cigarette into a, uh, uh, trash bag with flammables in it, but no one's really sure what happened because it had been like seven hours since uh, since the workers had left for the day. Uh, anyway, I had to give like testimony to the to the cops and to this uh, fire investigator who was one of the least competent individuals i'd ever encountered in my life and when i was talking to him he said uh he said okay tell me tell me what you saw and i said well i stepped out onto my back porch and uh i was looking out and he said did you step out to take a cigarette break have a smoke and i said no actually i stepped out to take a pee but it's like he was like i'm like i'm no fire investigator but i'm pretty sure that's what's called a leading question <laughs> you know uh, and he's like already imposing this weird accusatory narrative onto me. I'm like, motherfucker, I called you. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it was a weird, weird night. And that has nothing to do with uh, tread, but I couldn't not tell you that story based on talking about incompetence of uh, uh, rural fire departments. Yes. No, I, yeah, I knew that story. Oh, did you? Did yeah. I tell you that? Yeah, I just I was what letting you go. I was letting I you vibe you though. When did I tell you that? 
Thanksgiving. Oh, at, at Corey's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. Man, a, I was like, when would I have told you that? We had a nice, safe, outdoor Friendsgiving. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was the closest thing to a normal social interaction I've had in a while. But still, I didn't feel... I didn't feel like I was going to have the plague the next day. That's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, no, I think that's relevant because it just shows that, I mean, people in these positions on like national or international levels are often kind of dipshits. So why wouldn't that also be the case? And often more so in, in smaller towns. Um, so, you know, if you're the, the fire inspector, whatever he is in, in Murfreesboro, like how much training do you think he's really got? I mean, he's probably got like the adequate amount of training, but like the quality of the training and also like how often is he really thrust into service? (laughs) He said, he said that, uh, it was his first week as the fire (laughs) investigator and that this was his third fire. Didn't, didn't, Oh wow. Well, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if they're all like smaller ones like this, but didn't he have like a funny name? Uh, I can't remember his name now. I I have his card somewhere, but he, he insisted that he was going to come back out here the next day. And I have not heard anything from him or no one has. Uh, I can't remember his name. I, I, by funny, I just mean like, it's like some really plain kind of, Oh, of course that's your name sort of thing. I don't know. He was an interesting guy. That's for damn sure. It's it's people like him. That's why Marv did it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, Let's let's talk about. We've already touched on a little bit, but the the sort of final showdown where like the cops are kind of coming out of the woodwork and like shooting at the tank or the bulldozer. I think if you kind of stick with Marv's act and the bulldozer as a metaphor for this sort of insular fortified American psyche, uh, it's, it's interesting to read the attempts to stop it uh, as like, you know, an attempt to sort of rein in all these negative aspects of insularity and, you know, impenetrable, impenetrable ego and solipsism that largely characterizes, you know, America. You can think about it individually in terms of like, you know, how logic, like alternative facts and like how you cannot penetrate the mind of say a Trump supporter, but you can also think about it more sociologically and like fortifying the borders, uh, and how we, you know, we kind of want to fortify America. Uh, but if you, if you think about that as a metaphor and think about all these attempts to stop Marv as this attempt to penetrate this insular, uh, way of being, it's kind of a depressing lesson that the, the movie has, you know, you've just got to let it, run its course eventually it will encounter something that it doesn't know how to overcome or navigate and then it will 
sort of implode and commit suicide. <laughs> if, we, if we think about Marv in, in Marv in the bulldozer as like the American spirit as he smokes, uh, it ends in a almost like a, a boring suicide. Yeah, it's kind of anticlimactic, right? Like all the all the big fireworks have already happened. Um, yeah. And yeah, I do. I think that's kind of apt. Is that you have this sort of the sort of angry as hell male American psyche represented by this concrete and steel clad bulldozer that's foreign made, which is funny to me. Um, <laughs> and. and I think that's a, a pretty, pretty good sort of way of, of, of or a, a good kind of stand in this impenetrable thing that destroys everything in its path. And the only thing that can stop it is sort of its own limitations. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and it's interesting. They try to stop it with the, you know, the, the title of the movie's tread They they think they can stop it by, you know, shoving some sort of something in the, in the tread, mm-hmm. uh, but they can't. Uh, and, and I guess tread is sort of a reference to the sort of gun rights slogan, don't tread on me. And, yeah. and the sort of ideological implications of that worldview. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, eventually ultimately you kind of see all these, you know, the police officers shooting these guns and even the guy who shows up with the military grade, fuck you rifle, uh, you know, it's fighting fire with fire yeah. and it, it has no, no bearing. And you just have, it's like, we just have to watch the empire die. <laughs> watch it, watch it, watch the fire burn itself out. Right. Um, <laughs> no, that's kind of it, my fit. One of my favorite characters and the well favorite people in the film is the guy you're talking about with the guns. Who's like, has had, military training or something and he he looks he, like you would expect him like bam bam bigelow or something he's like this big dude who's bald with like a goatee and his solution is i'm just going to keep using increasingly larger guns to shoot at this and none of it works and they they literally try to put a bulldozer in front of the bulldozer but the bulldozer bulldozes the bulldozer <laughs> it's just so funny and the, uh, it's like it's like children like this is like you know, children get their Tonka trucks and play with it. It's just like they just grew up and now the consequences are more severe. Yeah. It, it, it's the same pleasure yeah. that they are engaging in. I, I loved when they put the, uh, it's like a road scraper or something, some big fucking thing in front of it. And, the you know, Marv rolls up and just starts pushing it out of the way. And the guy driving it just leaves. He's like, yeah, I'm not doing this. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. now I did just finish listening to the, uh, audiobook of the end of the myth from the frontier to the border wall in the mind of America by Greg Grandin, hmm. which is a, was a great book. And it, it made me think of, uh, something you said made me think of it, which was thinking about it in terms of like fortifying a border. Um, yeah. so you can imagine with a title like that, that he has a lot to say about that. And it's a really great history of america's attitude toward borders specifically the southern border with mexico and um the kind of person that would have been sort of a marv of an earlier time except 
instead of turning that anger inwards at the people in the town, they turn it outwards toward Mexicans or, you know, whoever the big threat is out on the frontier. It's, it's whoever they perceive to be encroaching on whatever they perceive as their own sort of bubble. Yeah, because uh, we have and, this idea. And, no, that, that's sort of Grandin's whole thesis is that a problem America's having right now is that we're out of frontiers and we're out of people on the other side of them to fight against. Uh, so we're sort of changing it to where the frontier is everywhere, everywhere with sort of mass surveillance and the war on terror and all this sort of stuff. And also pointing it back inwards because there's nowhere to point it outwards anymore. Um, yeah, uh, so. I, I've been reading. I sent you that that those paragraphs from that book, Radical Technologies, The Design of Everyday Life by mm-hmm. Adam Greenfield, which I've read a few chapters so far, and it kicks a lot of ass. And he he basically says diagnosis kind of uh, uh you know I- imperial power certainly has not disappeared just because columbus is not sailing across the ocean anymore and and he basically says uh imperial power is corporate and it is at work colonizing uh the experience of everyday life through uh, the internet of things uh it's a the the frontier is now sort of theoretical in a way and or digital is maybe a better way to put it uh, yeah the uh, the ideology does not go away it just it just gets more abstract yeah it's like why do you need a refrigerator that records everything you say <laughs> like why is that a thing that you would need um so yeah, I mean that's a, it's a really interesting thing to think about. Um, this idea of the the frontier is now uh, the uh, inter- the information superhighway, <laughs> the mm-hmm. information super frontier, um, which is true, I guess, in a lot of ways. Is is kind of, and that's why you always hear. And this is maybe this is sort of a uniquely American psychosis, but whenever there's something that is unregulated largely it's always called the wild west yeah and this is like i just said that and if you're listening and you're american you're like yeah no shit (laughs) because we're so used to hearing that all the time kind of goes without saying but i mean that suggests something i think very deeply ingrained in our culture of that image of that's the ultimate high point of kind of a mission that we could all agree upon (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel like we've had, throughout this podcast, we've had plenty of conversations about that kind of insatiable American uh, drive towards somewhere else, anywhere else. Usually we have occasion uh, in, in uh, science fiction because before, before digital space became the place of colonization, uh, I think writers especially sort of imagine uh, outer space is a sort of convenient metaphor for exploration and, and colonization or issues of exploration and colonization. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's not a coincidence that we've had so many occasions to bring up that uniquely American uh, need to keep moving somewhere else at all times. Yeah. And, and uh, we've, you know, we've touched on it 
or we've had occasion to touch on it before with like in a different way of talking about the 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 kind of classic story of disappearing into the wilderness uh so into the wild leave no trace that kind of thing uh, even yeah. captain fantastic a, a lot of the movies we did kind of earlier on um that's that's kind of the impulse at the center of, of a lot of them is to to keep moving to keep pushing towards something else to keep you know pushing toward the quote-unquote wild because you have that dichotomy of that is not civilization and civilization is not that and all the sort of stuff that we've talked about it's really uh, kind of the the informing ethic of interstellar yeah like that's sort of what that movie is glorifying is that that impulse um, which it connects with the American spirit towards towards uh, uh, exploration and and basically the novel like newness uh, but you I mean enough time passes and you you run out of shit <laughs> you know <laughs> planet's you gotta, only so big you got to rethink some things Uh, yeah and it's even even uh you know what does mcconaughey say is like we used to be well i mean it's the thing we used to look up at the stars and we look at the mud but does he say like we used to be explorers or something um yeah we're explorers pioneers yeah yeah. caretakers yeah yeah and the fact that being a caretaker is so fucking awful to him in that moment um, and even if you think of something like homesteading in sort of American history, even that is deeply colored by exploration and quote unquote pioneering. And all. so, you know, you have high schools in a lot of places where their mascot will be like the pioneer because of some like early settler that came through or something like that. And that's our idea of what it means to to be a pioneer or something and, and being a caretaker, which is sort of the hard work that comes after the pioneering is sort of less appealing. Right. Which is kind of, it's why Wendell Berry, like we've probably talked about this before, but Wendell Berry is sort of at his core, a very conservative writer and seems like a very conservative person. He just has this one idea that's, or well, I mean, he has multiple ideas, but one of the ideas he has, that seems, you know, radical is this idea of, of caretaking of sort of belonging to a place and, and, and fostering, a place and caring for it and all these developing it sorts of things like that. Um, and, and that somehow is seen as being some radical idea. It's also sort of coded as feminine in our culture, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and exploration as virile or manly, um, manly. Yeah. Um, yeah, these uh, interesting, interesting things here. Um, I, one of one of Wendell Berry's main points, I think, is that uh, it's not it's not necessarily that he's arguing, you know, that that people should should be more connected to the land. He's sort of arguing you are whether you know it or not, and and your uh, lack of awareness about it ensures uh, poor caretaking. And so you have a relationship of care to the land, whether you know it or not. And if you don't know it, it's necessarily a poor relationship and a destructive relationship. Yeah. 
I, I, I was thinking of Wendell Berry. I, I did a Zoom conference presentation a while back. I think I, I mentioned this to you uh, sort of off off mic, but um, I was... Oh, was this about Planet of the Humans? Yeah, and there was a part where I was sort of... I was talking about how the idea of overpopulation as kind of a bridge to eco-fascism is not something that's completely foreign to American environmentalism. And the example I used was Edward Abbey, who wrote a lot of real cool stuff, but was also very sort of anti-immigration and downright, like basically racist toward Mexicans and Haitians and a lot of other people, um, you know, compared them to insects and sorts of things like that. And there was a, a cool exchange between him and Wendell Berry where Wendell, Wendell Berry, yeah, it's great. Yeah, Wendell Berry like says something to the effect of like when you start talking about we need to thin the herd or, or you know take care of overpopulation, I get worried because I'm not sure if I'm part of the group that you're going to say should keep living. Um, right. You know, on top of a lot right. of other Am things. Am I part of the population that is the the over part? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and that's that's sort of neither here nor there. Just sort of one of those cool Wendell Berry things where it's he, like I said, he's a very conservative kind of thinker in a lot of ways, but he's, he's, he's kind of one of the more human thinkers. I think the country's ever produced where he thinks about it beyond the sort of cold, hard facts and, and all those kinds of things. Um, not that he doesn't do so logically, but it's very much of looking at something from, trying to look at things from multiple angles. I don't know. I'm talking about my ass here, but just, well, well, I, I, no, I think what you're picking up on, he uses a phrase that he quotes, I believe it's from Ian e. Forrester and he, he titles one book, uh, based on, on this quote, it's, uh, it all turns on affection. Yeah. Uh, basically arguing that there is a logic deeper than rationalism, uh, yes. that, that is necessary, uh, for, and uniquely human uh because the point of being alive is not just survival it's thriving and and having meaningful relationships within a community and you know uh so there has to be a sort of uh, something deeper than just like you know uh using logic to rationally navigate the world like uh he, he he starts from a a more emotional uh, relational place yeah and that like if i could just get my students to not necessarily accept that way of thinking but at least understand it and acknowledge it as a way of looking at the world they would frustrate me so much less <laughs> right and it's uh, you know that's an impossible task like getting getting someone always always use in in my classes always use that david foster wallace joke where he talks about the two fish the two young fish and the older fish swims up and says morning boys how's the water swims away and one of the younger fish says what the hell is water uh getting getting students who are you know 18 19 years old right now to like understand that the very specific aspects of culture that dominate their lives, uh, and here comes my old man uh, brain talking about smartphones. But like I just read that Adam Greenfield chapter on smartphones, and it'll it'll fuck you up. Uh, getting getting young people to understand that like 
there was a whole world before the internet and people were potentially happier uh, in some instances before it. They, they can't even really conceive of the question, um, at least not in any meaningful, real way. So to get an 18-year-old to uh, acknowledge and understand Wendell Berry's perspective, I'd say, is a, a pretty tall order. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't play. It's, it's like I say to people when I, like, start to sound kind of curmudgeonly. I'll just be like, well, you know, I was a shithead when I was a kid too. And I was like, we all are. That's the human part of the human condition is you're an idiot for a certain stretch of time. And then very likely you continue to be an idiot like I am, or, you know, you pick up a few things along the way that help you sort of not die and maybe understand the world a little bit better. Camouflage your idiocy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You pick up a few (laughs) tricks that, that make it look like you're smart. Like when a dog knows how to shake hands or something. Um, (laughs) So it's just, yeah. Anyway, um, something else that reminds me of that, and I'm just going to sort of talk about things that I'm reading currently, but after I finished the Grandin book, I moved on to uh, Debt, The First 5,000 Years by David Graeber, mm. who died earlier this year, I believe, kind of unexpectedly at a rather sort of young age. Uh, and it's, it's what it sounds like, a history of debt. But he begins with this great anecdote of being at this party, and he's talking to some sort of young, I think she's a corporate lawyer or something like that. And, uh, they're sort of talking about what they do. And he's like, Oh, I've been working with, uh, you know, these demonstrations and thing actions against the uh, international monetary fund and all this sort of stuff. And she's like, keeps ask, asking questions. And eventually he's sort of explaining this idea of, of why debt is bad. And he's like, well, these countries have been saddled with all this debt that they can never pay back. And it's used as a way to sort of override their ability to create policy within their own country and all this sort of stuff. And the, the person's reaction as well. I mean, you have to pay your debts, don't you? Like they took out the debt. They took out the loan. Of course they have to pay back their debt. And so he starts off with this idea of why does this idea persist and why is it so, so hurtful, so harmful, um, hurtful. Like, why does this idea suck so much basically? Um, Mm -hmm. and sort of runs you through this idea, runs you through the sort of history of here's where debt comes from. Here's why this whole notion that you have to pay them is stupid. Here's why bartering never really existed in the way that we think about it. All these sorts of stuff. Um, and this is sort of a long way of saying it's a kind of book I dig because it takes something that's sort of accepted as common knowledge, something that kind of goes without saying and says, Oh, actually, no, this is very much needs to be said and needs to be explained to and understood beyond just accepting it as something that has to be the way it is. Um, does that does that book uh, go into like the biblical roots of debt forgiveness? I think it's like in Deuteronomy or Leviticus or something. I if it does not yet because he's still talking about like Sumerians and stuff. Okay. Yeah, I I saw I know like debt relief is a especially with COVID now has become a, a bigger yeah. issue uh, that's putting it mildly. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, Deuteronomy 15. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. It's basically the idea, at least at least in the times of Deuteronomy, that uh, that the uh, the local economy could not survive if if every seven years debts weren't just 
obliterated and erased. Uh, it's just an acknowledgement that the economy is an imperfect system and there are circumstances beyond individuals control that can, you know, exponentially get accelerated or, or whatever. And, and obviously in, in contemporary times, you see a pandemic is, is one such circumstance where, uh, you know, individuals cannot get on top of that debt. Uh, anyway, it's interesting to, to learn about the history of debt. I'd be, I, I haven't heard of that book, but it sounds cool. I recommend uh, it. Um, it's, it's interesting to see the sort of historical precedence for it. Like this is not a new problem. No. And, and that's why it's interesting of, uh, the idea of interest. I, there's a famous quote, um, about yeah. compound interest. <laughs> uh, sorry, I have to Google it. Um, <laughs> I, I used to, it used to be a quote that would come up when I was playing civilization, when you would get, um, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't pays it. It's Einstein. <laughs> it, maybe, and then there's that, uh, the quote that like, if you, if was it like, if, uh, you owe the bank, a thousand dollars or whatever that's a problem for you if you owe them a million dollars that's a problem for them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Um, exactly it's kind of interesting but yeah think about the the sort of old school uh, origins of it and also how certain uh, religious things like you mentioned deuteronomy you should forgive get forgive debts and in islam you're not supposed to charge interest on loans and stuff like that um all these things that have just sort of gone out the window because it's a massive way to keep everything, keep this ball of shit rolling. Yeah. And it's, and it's, a it's economic rationalism. Um, it, that like we understand, uh, it's like, we don't understand the economy according to our moral system. We understand the system of morality through the lens of economy. Um, yeah instead of the other so, way around which uh, right right and that's why yeah that's why i keep bringing it back to this just because it's my job but that's why education has been sort of gone going down the shitter um because that's the way everybody views everything is it's not education is a side effect like it has nothing to do with why people go to college uh like maybe they learn some useful things maybe they don't one way or another they want to come out of it and be employable whatever the fuck that means now. You sounded like Baz Luhrmann just then. Maybe they learn something useful. Maybe they don't. <laughs> Remember that song, Sunscreen? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you get married. Maybe you don't. What's the, I always remember the thing. Maybe about you dance the funky chicken on your 50th wedding anniversary. <laughs> it, it, makes, it makes me think of the uh, the part of it where he's like, it's a great sort of poetic device where it's uh, something about your hair. You'll miss it when it's gone. And there's something about your knees. It's like, you'll miss you'll those, miss when, those they're when they're gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've, as I was watching true detective a couple of weeks ago, I thought about creating a, uh, a sort of parody of sunscreen by Baz Luhrmann, except it's just Russ Cole quotes that, and it, it would end with him, his advice. Uh, if you get the opportunity, you should kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> time is a flat circle yeah there's a there's a 
that's a that needs to be one of your remix projects uh, <laughs> uh, sunscreen as t- interpreted by rust cole <laughs> you the opportunity you should kill yourself um that's why like most of the pictures on my phone are just like different suicide memes um that's one of them i have like if a friend sends me something that like shitty that's happened, I'll just send that back. I think I've received, I've been on the receiving end of a few of those. I found, yeah. I found like my favorite, uh, gif the other day. Uh, I've always wanted this to be a gif and I found that it exists. It's from workaholics, uh, where they, they barge into the Gramps demand funeral uh, with their interpretation of the song Who Let the Dogs Out, which goes, Whom let these hounds in? Hounds, 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 hounds. <laughs> it is the greatest thing of all time. You should look it up as soon as possible. It's the Gramps Demamp funeral episode. Whom let these hounds in? <laughs> hounds, 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 hounds. It makes no sense at all. Uh, man, we have gotten really far afield somehow. Uh, Imagine that. One thing I did wanted to br- I want to bring up about tread, and it's amazing how many occasions we've had to reference this throughout this podcast. Uh, the song "When the President Talks to God" by Bright Eyes. Mm-hmm. So again, we have this very personal religion uh, where Marv thinks he's sort of being guided by God and mentions it several times on his tapes. Um, and of course this happened in 2004 during the, uh, premier Bush, uh, the Bush regime as Borat would call it. And, and of course George W. Bush famous for sort of claiming to be guided by God and, and, and talk to God, uh, just, just another, yet another instance of this sort of uh, uh, private religion posing as a sort of spiritual tradition. It's really kind of just like coincidence as divine affirmation. How about the part where Marv is talking about God and he's like, you know, why would I buy this bulldozer and why would it fit into this? particular garage if god didn't want me to have it like what the fuck is going on signs and wonders everywhere man (laughs) god damn beyond everything ed tom but yeah that part Uh, that the justification was so like that's that's sort of well there was a lot of stuff up to that point that would lead you to believe that he's lost his damn mind but that's the point where you're like okay never mind this was this was a foregone conclusion a long time ago it's interesting how in that song, when the president talks to God, you know, obviously Connor Ober sort of says, okay, are you talking to God or are you talking to yourself? Um, and Marv says, I'm a slave to God. You know, I, I'm not in control of my life. And if, if you sort of interpret God as the voice in his head or this sort of, uh, abstract sort of inner self it's 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 interesting to think of it as like him just sort of admitting that he is controlled by unconscious impulses 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, like what he calls God is actually just this sort of spiritual veneer of, uh, of uncon not uncontrollable, but uncontrolled and unconscious impulses. I just read strangely, if we're going to talk about what we've been reading recently, I just read, uh, a book about the, uh, Norwegian artist, uh, Edvard Munk, uh, because I really like a few of his paintings and I saw this old drawing that he'd done and the writer, uh, of the book, it's an older book, JP Hoden, I think his name is, hmm. uh, gives a sort of what he calls a depth psychological interpretation, uh, basically a union interpretation of this drawing where it's of a, a, a farmer plowing his field, but it's clear that the horse uh, that he's hooked up to is stronger and is in control. And the horse has this weird kind of eerie kind of uh, crazy look on his face. Like he's, almost like he's mentally deranged <laughs> the, the horse uh, or confused or something. And so the, the, the writer's interpretation of this painting, his depth psychological interpretation is that the horse is this kind of uh, representation of animal instincts and impulses that have uh, a stronger hold on the, the human uh, than we like to imagine it does. Uh, and, and that's sort of what I thought about when I heard Marv say, I'm a slave to God. I sort of interpret that as I'm a slave to myself. I'm a slave to my unconscious impulses and I can't, uh, pardon the pun, rein it in. There's a, I read about half this book a while back and, and never got around to finishing it, but, uh, book by by edward about edward monk by uh carl ove nausgaard knausgaard however you oh pronounce yeah, yeah yeah my my struggle that that guy yeah and this book is yeah. called uh so much longing and so little space i think uh is it really just, interesting oh yeah he's 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 norwegian isn't he yeah he's like the only norwegian author that anybody knows about um uh, yeah yeah he's uh I didn't realize I didn't know that Munch was Norwegian uh, until I started reading about him in this book, yeah. and he's a, he's like a big fucking deal over in, in Norway. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we just think about it. Well, most people just think about him as the Scream, but was around for a long time. Was like a really well respected painter, and kind of that was what he did. He was always kind of a famous painter. Yeah, um, but yeah, it, it, that's that book's interesting because it's uh, now scarred kind of doing his thing where he writes about these experiences and these very sort of minute details, but he's also bringing in this sort of art criticism and historical, uh, information about Monk and all these sorts of things. And it's, uh, and the fact that they're both sort of like well-known Norwegian artists kind of plays into it. Anyway. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Has I, nothing uh, to do with I've, tread. I've, I've just in the last year become the type of person who'll like read a book about art. I read, I bought that Verso book, uh, um, the John Berger, like compilation Mm -hmm. portraits. And it's just fucking awesome. And I was like, okay, I'm, I I read art books now. Um, I've I've crossed that threshold. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I bought this giant book on Goya and I'm like weirdly looking forward to it. Uh, not not the beans 
Goya Goya is the one that did the the weird paintings on his barn of like Saturn eating his children and stuff like that. Yeah, right? yeah. And yeah, uh third of May the black paintings. Yeah. Uh excellent. <laughs> anyway, uh from from Marv Intred to Goya. I mean yeah, the the, the couple story. dudes. Just a couple guys being dudes losing their damn minds and doing things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess we're done. Uh, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. Next week we're watching uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I'd like to think this was a better conversation than the one we had about silent running. I feel like Talk we were about just silent sort of... running, right? Appropriate title. Yeah, um, we were just sort of like, yeah, this is a movie. This is what happens. It's boring. Don't watch it. <laughs> uh, or, you know, do watch it. It's, it's I don't know. It's not great. Um, next week we're doing. Uh, I should have asked this beforehand. Are these like Christmas related movies? Uh, the like Family holiday? Stone. Family Stone. The Family Stone is a Christmas movie. Okay, so the we're doing that. Is not. Okay, so The Family Stone, two thousand five, directed by uh, Thomas, and we think the last name is Bazooka, which is dope. And then yeah. uh, doing that alongside Junebug, also from two thousand five, directed by Phil Morrison. And this was your kind of brainchild. Pairing. Yeah. For, okay. First of all, these are two movies that I love uh, unabashedly. Uh, but we, they, if you've seen these movies, you can, after five seconds of thought, sort of uh, put together why we would put them together. Um, so we'll talk about similarities, differences, blue state, red state, tensions, and the holidays, and all types of good things. All right, cool. I'm looking forward to it. I haven't seen either of these, so I look forward to it. I've seen both of them at least ten times. <laughs> I remember seeing like commercials for the Family Stone back in the day, but that's as much all, as all I'm... the negative all the negative things that you feel about the Family Stone. You're gonna have to sugarcoat, and because like I fucking love this movie. <laughs> It just tells you all the right lies that you want told to you. <laughs> all right. I'll keep that in mind. I like being told lies. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be checking those out. All right. Yeah. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self. This accretion of sensory experience and feeling. Programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody. When in fact, everybody's nobody. The honorable thing for our species to do is deny our programming. Stop reproducing. Walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming. And I lack the constitution for suicide. I got a bad taste in my mouth out here.
was all the same thing. It was all the same dream. A dream that you had inside a locked room. A dream about being so bit drama that it was never anything but a jerry rig of presumption and dumb will. And you could just let go. Finally know that you didn't have to hold on so tight. To realize that Yeah.